This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to another episode of Climify. Thanks for being patient the past two weeks as I was away on summer vacation and simply wanted to disconnect and get out into the world. But I'm back with a great guest today who focuses on the drawdown solution sector of buildings, or in particular, net zero architecture. Before we get into the conversation, I wanted to give you a quick announcement. Three episodes ago, I spoke with Rebecca Mendez and Holly Robbins about teaching sustainable design. With a promise, there would be a follow-up event sponsored by the AIGA Design Educators community. Well, currently, that event is scheduled to be a live one on Saturday, August 12th. It'll be online and you can get more notice here and over at educators.aiga.org about the time and registration information. Well, my guest today is Paula Huerta, an architect originally from Spain who now lives and practices net zero architecture in Indonesia. Like many of you, I always strive to live and work with as small as an ecological footprint as I can, hoping one day in the future, I can make a positive impact. But I fall short every day. Part of that is where and how I live. My home has too many trees for solar on the roof, but I still want to minimize my greenhouse gas emissions as much as possible. I could get a heat pump, and I will. I could do a lot of things which our guest today digs into. What's really vital for me from today's conversation is how I can learn from what Paula does to help my students. I teach a sustainable design capstone course every spring, where a good 25% of the students want to design net zero homes as their thesis. I can point them in a bunch of different directions online, but I really have no idea how to build a net zero home. This discussion and the work Paula has on her website are going to be vital for the success of my students in that class going forward, and hopefully yours too, as getting to net zero requires circular design strategies, and that applies to all design. Incidentally, if you're a homeowner in the US, you can go to whitehouse.gov forward slash clean energy. That's whitehouse.gov forward slash clean energy to get info on how you can get solar, a heat bump, better insulation, and receive a healthy tax credit for doing so. And if you're outside of the US, check with your local government on how you can also work toward a net zero home. So without further ado, Paula, take it away. Hi, my name is Paula Huerta. I'm a sustainable architect and a secure economy specialist. I live in Lombok, Indonesia, where I'm based now. And you can find me online at paula at bambukestudio.com. Paula, thanks for coming on Climify. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Eric, for inviting me. It's truly an honor to be here in Climify with you. And I'm really grateful. Uh-huh. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. And I'm glad that despite the time zone differences, we've been able to manage one that works. Yeah, we made it work. Yeah, you're like 13 hours ahead of me. Is that is that accurate? Right now it's nine in the morning. So I think so. Yeah. Is your evening right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's 13 hours. Wow. 
Well, good morning to you and good day to everyone else who's listening in. I wanted to start with something I'm always intrigued by with people like you who are working in the in the climate sphere, and that is, you know, how did you get your start in sustainability and climate action and, and what really inspired you to get involved? Well, probably as most people, I was not raised as a climate activist yeah. <laughs> during the 80s and 90s in this Spain. Yeah, I mean, it's quite like a new thing. So um, my childhood in Spain in the 90s and 80s and 90s, you know, there were a few environmental problems already affecting us. Spain is a very water-stressed country, so we've always been living yeah. with droughts and um, water scarcity. And I also remember the ozone layer problem. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, I mean, that was happening during my childhood, and I remember that as a, as a problem, environmental problem, but nothing that really affected me so much as when I studied for my lead exam in, 20, in, in 2008. Um, you know, I was blown away to learn that the building stock was the largest single most pollutant sector in the planet. That building used uh, about 40% of global energy, 70% of global electricity, 25% of global water. And this is in a context where I'm working in a corporate, an American corporate called HOK in Singapore. Yes. And I had finished my university like three years prior. I had graduated and I had never, ever before heard about this. So I was in shock. Yeah. And in my head, all of these ideas and thoughts came and it was really like a catalyst for me because I understood a few things. The first one was that architects and designers have a fundamental role to play to change things and improve things. Hey, yes. Yes, we do. The, yeah. And then, you know, I, it was the, the second thing was that, you know, how could it be that I've never heard that? I just recently graduated. That meant that they were like four five generations of architects older than me, people active, working, that probably weren't even aware or had no idea about these impacts of their job and their practice. And the third thing was that I finally found something to be passionate about in design. You know, I had been working in HOK in Singapore with designing skyscrapers and, you know, big buildings. And it really meant really little um, design because it was yeah. so based on aesthetics and looks. And um, for once, suddenly, you know, um, design had a bigger purpose. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with so, you on that. I, that was something. Yeah, that... and then, yeah, so that's key because for me, it really gave me that passion that I was lacking before. Yeah. Um, so lead was really my wake up moment, and after that, everything in my career was shaped to just do more. I quit HOK in Singapore after three years, went to the UK, did my master's in science at CAT, the Center of Alternative Technology in Wales, quite a famous place. I yeah. became a sustainable design specialist. Um, back to Singapore again, worked again in corporate, American corporate for four years, but this time was in a more engineering firm called CH2M Hill. Now I think it's Jacobs. Um, and, you know, we were working more in like advanced technology buildings, um, labs, hospitals, airports, data centers, manufacturing plants, all of them, you know, like big polluter activity buildings yeah. and yeah. most, yeah, I mean, it's like big monsters, right? So um, we were doing lead and building energy performance optimizations. Most of them are corporate clients. They pay their bills, their energy bills. 
So it makes sense for them from their marketing perspective and also financial perspective to want to push a little bit to lower the emissions. Mm -hmm. Did that for four years, but, you know, honestly, like personally, I'm always in this position where I think I'm not doing enough. Yeah, um, I, I relate to that. Yeah, and I feels like, you know, okay, so I'm sitting here in a corporate job. I'm making a lot of money. It's great. Um, I get to tell clients how to improve their buildings and doing lead and that, but I didn't really think that that was going to change the world. There's a lot of flaws mm -hmm. in that exercise. So um, 10 years ago, I decided to take a super life change and move to Indonesia where I started my office now, Bambuka Studio. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to your story is, is a little bit like looking in the mirror for me in that I was working in the corporate world and had that sort of shocking moment as well. And we both went to grad school, right? We both, we both tried to find answers um, through some more learning. And I just went to teaching route and you went to um, more of that's, that's the big difference, right? Like you're gone to start Bambook Studio and what, what's the, what's the mission of, of your studio and how do you hope it impacts the world? Yeah, so um, I've been here in Lombok, Indonesia for almost 10 years. Um, in reality, everything has started because my husband and I, we um, built a house here in, in Lombok. We live in a village of a thousand people, a fisherman village Ooh, in Indonesia. Small. It's really remote, yes. Yeah, sounds like And, you know, after building our bamboo home, which is like, you know, the most sustainable project you can do, I was my own client, so it's a bit easier when you know yeah. how you want your things to be. Um, so we live in a net zero home. It's mostly off grid. Um, we treat and reuse all of our water. We have implemented literally everything wow. I learned on my master's. Um, we did a lot of effort in restoring our land. It's a big plot. Uh, implementing permaculture, and we currently live a super low impact life. So I really felt that transition was, you know, for me, my life, my career, and also to to prove that I could walk the talk. Yes. Um, and, you know, because of that house, our house, I got more clients. Suddenly people were like, oh, we love your house. Could you do one for me? And yeah, that's that really sense. how Bamboo, yeah. yeah, how Bamboo started. There wasn't a lot of architects here uh, before, not even now so many. So, uh, you know, I was in an advantage position and that's how Bamboo came to lie. At the beginning, it was really purely a sustainable design and built a studio. I mean, because I'm a sustainable specialist, uh, of course, you know, I really don't know how to design differently. And this yeah. really goes aligned with a lot of your previous podcasts where you're speaking about whether we are climate designers or not. Um, yes, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that, that makes total yeah, sense. Um, to me. There's no other way, you know, like for me, yeah. the, the rules are under the low impact and the sustainability aspect. So when you design, you just follow those rules, same as you need to follow rules for structural or, you know, like a, a, any other regulations. Um, I implement my own sustainable regulations in my designs. I do too. I, makes, I add like an extra layer, yeah. right? So it's, it's. But it makes extra, sense. Yeah. I mean, if you're aware of what it is, wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I couldn't imagine, like you were saying, doing a, a project where I just didn't follow those sustainable parameters. I think I would be very 
I don't know what I would do. I mean, I guess I wouldn't do it because it's just embedded in what I do. And it sounds the same exactly. for you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, for me, I've, I've declined clients here because they don't go align with yeah, my principles. Just for you. I mean, I'm in it's a hard to do. It's hard to do that. It's hard. I think I'm in a privileged position because there's not much competition here. So mm-hmm. I've placed myself in a context where it's either you take it or you leave it. But at the same time, in Indonesia, in this context of tropical climate, you don't need to spend a lot of money on insulation or big, thick, you know, like thermal mass wall, uh, walls or uh, heating. So it's cheaper to achieve uh, sustainability, I think, in this context. But also, yeah. they are my principles. So it's either you take it or you leave it. I can't uh, do anything yeah. differently. Um, so, yeah, Bambuk at the beginning was just purely design and built. But, mm-hmm. you know, we were always implemented, like I said, you know, many passive design strategies to minimize consumption. We're following all the steps of sustainable design or a sustainable architect might follow and consider all the externalities, all the negative impacts. We've done the first net zero projects here, but also personally, like as Paula, I'm also doing a lot of sustainable consulting. Mm. Uh, recently, there is a boom on that, you know, even here in Indonesia. So I'm helping business create like their true sustainable project, like understand what it is. Many people want to do it, but they don't really know how to achieve it. What does it mean? Uh, if it's possible, how you operate it. Um, so I'm always looking for, you know, uh, more challenges. Um, I'm also consulting for a big plastic recycling company from the UK who are here in Indonesia. They're a large uh, recycling center in Surabaya. So I'm helping them with the roadmap, um, which is basically to implement in Lombok and Sumbawa is the same province, um, plastic processing plants. So I'm designing those plants with them and, you know, architecture can help in so many ways. Yeah. It's not just building, you know, it's also helping other companies achieve their goals. Um, you know, like since a few years ago, I've been doing so much pro bono myself because I'm always have this feeling that I'm not doing enough. So I did the first facility for organized waste conversion center here next to where I live. It's a one ton a day based on insect farming with um with black soldier fly and it's still up and running. I founded uh, the Lombok Eco Flea Market, which is like a community of vendors that only sell earth friendly products. So we created these principles, you know, and right now this has created this incredible group that keeps growing and that, um, you know, it's like a movement of eco warriors that are Yeah, you're going way beyond architecture here. You're going way into, beyond. Yeah. There's so much to do. I always be like, who's going to do it if I don't do it? Community organizing. You're getting into yeah. that. You have activism um, roles. It's really impressive. Yeah. Right now, we just signed an MOU with the University of Mataram um, because we want to help them to create plastic neutral locations with this Honest Ocean, this company from the UK. Uh, there's a MotoGP racetrack here, and we are trying to tell them, okay, let's do it. This make the first racetrack plastic neutral. Then you learn, we'll be your mentors. You learn how to do it, and then you can implement this elsewhere in Indonesia. So it's all these ideas that, you know, actually the government takes really happily and um, they always, you know, like uh, want to collaborate and they welcome the help. Uh, but, you know, at the end, it's like another job that I do just for 
the sake of the planet. You're not doing enough, right? That's why you're doing it. It's never going to be enough unless we yeah. really can change things. So it's I've true. always got to keep on working on it till it changes. And I am the truly believer that a lot of the things that are needed now is action based. So I, I consider myself a climate activist, but I'm not on rallies or social media. I'm not really big on that. I'm not a millennial. I don't really, um, I'm not really into marketing and communications, but I'm more into action. Yeah, getting so, your hands dirty. Yes, and you know, I'm. I feel many times very lonely here in Lugo, uh, where I am. Um, okay. There's not a lot of people doing what you're doing. Is that why you're feeling lonely, or? Yeah, you know, like in general, I think this is like a sample of the miniature of the world, where you can see the impact in your face very yeah. clearly. But a lot of people are just like really minding their own business. Or well, they would expect that government will solve their problems for them, which yeah. is really unlikely in this context. And, right. you know, a well, lot of them would be like, oh, you know, oh, look at the beach. So there is so much plastic. But, you know, it's not like they're really taking like a lot of action to change the problem. No, not really. They have and, better things to do. Yeah. And with like what you just said about feeling lonely, I mean, this is when I get to talk about climate and sustainability on my podcast. I don't have that group here in town where I live locally. So I have to talk to you in Indonesia to, <laughs> to, to really get into this stuff that I care about. So I definitely can relate to how you feel about that. Yeah. I mean, you're doing on your, like you went to education, now you're communicating. Everything is needed. Yeah. I don't think one person can do it all, but um, the 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 main point is just like there's always something more you can do. There is, yeah, and that's how this podcast came to be, really, because I'm teaching this, and I want other people to teach it. So I'm going to make something that can help them do it. So exactly. um, I feel like, yeah, we have the same mindset on that. Yeah, I think, you know, in that way, we're really connected. And I heard a lot of your previous podcast and Did you? I think everybody's on that. Yeah, I just heard the Jamie the other day. Jamie Alexander, uh, they kick off this season. Yeah. Yeah. What she's doing is amazing. And then you recommended another podcast the other day. It's not yours with um, the producer of uh, uh, Kiss the Ground, which is one of my favorite yeah. movies. Oh, um, yeah. And you, you can see... You know, the main common denominator, while we're doing very different things, is the action. Is the, right. I needed to do more, you know? And I think that's something that this podcast is really, you know, kind of like promoting. It's we like, are. Look, people yeah. are not scared to get out of their comfort zone and do more. Yeah, I don't want to go to like a conference panel and just talk about this. I want to go to a conference panel with people and we create a plan and we do it. That's what I want. Exactly. To yeah. yeah. I, I'm tired of talking about it. Although not with you because we're action-based and this is uh, an important thing to push forward is we need to do. Something. Yes. Yeah. But you're like the vector with your students. And because this um, podcast is so many people doing things, it's great because the, the, you communicate to your students, like, look, this is possible. This is the, you know, you're like the vector between real action and people that are interested in that and in the future they'll be the hands that will be the professionals to really implement and change things you know 
like we were saying, there's generations above us that have no clue about this. True. Yeah. And one thing that you just brought up there was my students. And I wanted to ask you something uh, uh, based on a project that they always propose, propose to me and they never quite get there. And that is creating net zero architecture. And mm -hmm. you did that with your home. So I'm wondering if you could yeah. talk more about, first of all, what is net zero architecture okay. and how do you do it? What, what kind of suggestions can you give someone who maybe wants to try that on their own? Mm -hmm. So net zero, uh, it's quite easy to understand the concept of it. And it refers to a building or a project that can produce in within. So in terms of architecture would be on its site or, you know, as part of the building systems, all of the energy and water that needs to operate, you know, whatever activities happen inside. Um, so the first thing to design a sustainable building is to try to lower by, you know, implementing all of the passive design strategies and things that don't need artificial machines to provide comfort. So when you implement all of those strategies, like good orientation and, you know, in general, depends on the context and the climate, obviously, it will be different. But once you reduce the demand from the building, then you can implement the technology to be able to, you know, treat all your water and reuse it or install renewables so that you can produce all the electricity that your building needs, etc. Um, But, you know, net zero is this concept that leaves behind a huge uh, uh, part of architecture, and that's the whole impact of the building process. So right. it really doesn't account for the construction, which is, you know, I mean, a huge amount of emissions worldwide is one of those huge sectors. Um, it's not just the activity of the construction itself, it's the manufacturing of the building materials, it's the transport of those building materials. Um, it's one of those sectors that generates the most amount of waste and it's all, it's huge in resource depletion. So when you do net zero is great because the building will be living for like 30, 50 years so that you're tackling mm -hmm. that, but you're not really considering the other impact associated to architecture, which is the whole construction in general. No. So, yeah. um, the, the rule is to, you know, they always, in my university, they explain this thing like, you don't want to fall into the fat-free cake syndrome, which is, oh, it's a fat-free cake, so I'm going to eat two pieces instead oh, of I one. Oh, I see you're saying. Yeah, I've made that yes. mistake many times. Yes, so if you're going to design a net zero, you can't be like, oh, well, it's going to be a net zero, so I can just like, you know, boost the AC and stuff. You want to... Um, reduce your consumption first, design for minimum consumption, and then you apply. And if you can apply, let's say like, oh, look, to run my building, I only need 10 solar panels. But my roof, I could put 20 solar panels. Of course, it's going to depend on the budget and your client and all of that. But if you were to install 20 solar panels, which is double of the amount of energy you would need in your buildings, you could export that CO2 emission free electricity to the grid. So you're actually positive. You go from net zero to net plus, which means you're contributing. You're helping elsewhere, not just your project. Yeah. So this is why it's really important to not fall in the fat free cake syndrome, you know, and always try to also reduce your consumption first. Um, then it's easier and cheaper to achieve net zero. And it gives you the opportunity to go for yeah, uh, net sense. zero plus. 
Can I ask you about the the fat-free cake uh, analogy there? And so I remember reading about this uh, project, this architectural project that was done and the way that they were claiming that they uh, reached net zero is that they planted a certain amount of trees afterwards. Would would that fall into that fat-free cake or would that be okay yeah. to so net zero refers that you produce within your site, you know, with your building, all of that. When you are planting trees and all of that, you're like offsetting off grid, right? So you're trying to compensate the carbon emissions that you produce. Um, it's funny because all of the reforestation programs, you know, if you want to get carbon credits for it, you know, because they will be doing a job. There is like an offset of five years. You don't get any money or carbon credits for five years since you do the reforestation program. And, you know, it's also funny because it's quite tricky to get carbon credits on existing forest um, when they are actually capturing more carbon than the reforestation uh, yeah. programs. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to do it with, within your project. And then if you want to participate in reforestation programs, and I think most important is preservation because right now we're in this situation that this is happening in front of my face here, you know, in Lombok, where you have farmers and people that need living. And the only way mm -hmm. they know how to do it is to cut the forest and plant monocrops. And they get oh. heavily incentivized by all of these corporates, you know, like Monsanto giving seeds and fertilizers and uh, chemical herbicides yep. and all of that. They get trapped then too with the Monsanto it's products. It's so difficult to uh, avoid that, and uh, you is. know, because a forest is not really providing them an income. So there's a huge, you know, wave change now with agroforestry, and you know, in in reality, it's like soil management and um, ways of managing uh, forests and agriculture so that it can. You don't need to cut. The, the trees and sell the wood, but you could make income from the forest within. Um, in general, in architecture, I think, you know, you can buy green uh, electricity, you know, provided by renewables, and all of that is good for offsetting. But I think the main exercise is to really try to reduce your impact, even if you were providing all of your, you know, everything that you need, all your electricity, your water comes from a super sustainable source and it's not polluting. I think the exercise is to try to minimize, be more efficient um, and need less, you know, live a low impact life, which is what I've done with my own life. That doesn't mean that you need to go in a cave and, you know, and do <laughs> nothing. It's, you know, you like could. a lot of people would be, you could, but it doesn't mean that. Pretty I think boring. everybody just needs to focus on improving. Yeah, I agree. It's like, hey, what can I do better? with this part of my life. And uh, I talked to someone, I think in the first season of this uh, podcast where I talked about how I was just trying to eliminate plastics from my bathroom. That was like my first, mm -hmm. and then that led me to other things. So I like that. You learn in that yeah. process, right? You become yeah. aware, you learn. I think learning is something that you can't stop doing. It's so enriching. And actually, because I wanted to learn for the lead exam, that's how I got into this. And in yeah. sustainability, there is you, everything is sustainability, you know? 
So I think doing those little steps in your personal life, like what you're saying, it also leads you to learn more. And then yeah. was it hard to do it? Did your life change completely? Was it like, you know, a, a, a horrible transition to go through an adaptation? No, not at all. I mean, it was just, it cost me a little bit more money sometimes, but uh, then I was finding other things like, oh, I could do this in the kitchen. The kitchen's a lot harder is what I found out, but, yes. you know. But uh, yeah, it wasn't hard. It just took time. Yeah. So imagine if you need to do that in my context where you don't have waste collection. You don't? No. Oh, so you don't want to have waste at all in your situation, right? Yes, because you you're, have to face your impact so uh, uh, much more here than yeah, what I mean, you would do in a developed country. Yeah, we don't have them I mean, in the U.S., right? Like they take the trash away is how we view it. And unless you're living by the landfill, you, you don't know what happens to it. And it doesn't really bug you or bother you because it's gone every Tuesday or whatever. Exactly. Which yeah. is another thing that I learned in my master. That sub definition for that is called the flash and go. Flash, you flash and go. the toilet, you go. Oh, flush and go. You don't want to know. Yeah. You don't want to know what happens next, you know? Oh, no. I don't want to go to a water treatment plant. No way. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we have always this impression that, okay, well, you throw your garbage, it goes whatever, who cares? You flush and go your toilet, it goes whatever, who cares? You think, oh, you know, for sure my government is doing everything to be as clean as possible, as sustainable mm -hmm. as possible. But are you really sure? Um, yeah. You know, like, you, yeah. no. Yeah. And... Uh, the, the, one of the main things is that that doesn't allow you to face your impacts as much because you just flush and go. You just ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this distancing thing where if you don't see it, it's not your problem. Exactly. And you don't really want to see it, I think, in most cases. <laughs> we'll take a quick commercial break here and then get back to the conversation. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation, and how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, and I'm part of the Climate Designers New Wave team. In the past few years, New Wave has released two reports exploring students' experiences of climate design education, or lack thereof, and what they hope to see in their classes. Now we want you, design educators, to use this research in your classrooms. And this summer, we're giving educators a chance to talk to the New Wave team directly. Twice a month, the New Wave researchers will be available to walk you through our findings, answer any questions you have, and help you implement actionable project briefs directly into your classroom. We'll also show you how to use our media kit to easily share the research with your students and how they can sign up to be a participant. Head to climatedesigners.org edu slash new wave to sign up for a call with the New Wave team. Help us inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. Graphic design history is messy, it's incomplete, and it's full of overlooked, underrepresented, and ignored people and topics. Incomplete Design History podcast explores those topics and talks about those people to deepen and expand our knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of the history of graphic design. Season one and two are already available covering women from graphic design history and BIPOC designers and design culture. 
Be sure to subscribe to Incomplete Design History wherever you listen to podcasts and get caught up before season three drops in the fall of 2023. I-N-C-O-M-P-L-E-T Design History. You, you um, sent me when we first met uh, a video of your home that your net zero home that you built. And, and I would love to share, share that with my listeners on the show notes, if that's fine with you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because it was really amazing to see how you did it and what you used to do it. And I think, of course, right, you're using materials that are indigenous to where you live in your area. And you would yes. obviously recommend that, you know, for someone like me living in Illinois, I would, I would look to materials that are from my area to do that. For sure. I mean, you want to locally sourced most of your materials. That doesn't mean that 100% of it needs to be locally sourced, but you need to go through the exercise of, you know, where are your materials coming from? What's the embodied energy of those materials? How can I achieve the performance that I want with right. those materials? I think that's an exercise that it's needed uh, to do by all architects and, you know, you base your decisions on a lot of things is, you know, cost is one of them. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's not realistic and it's not possible to do things that you would want to, but at least you're making an informed decision and you are like contemplating all the aspects. It's not just like, okay, whatever, I'm going to use this and I don't care where it comes from and what's the embodied energy and who produces it and and all of that. I think this needs to be part of the equation of the design process. Yeah. When you um, talk about uh, every day or every step trying to get better, um, what resources or where do you look to help you do that within your own design work? Well, I, you know, I obviously like you consider all of the you know main disciplines that you need to look at you know like sites uh, a building footprint materials water energy passive design and waste so in all of those uh you look in different uh in different you know aspects of it but the main primary exercise that you would do since day one and I think in the U.S. might be a little bit harder to do, but in here it's really easy, is to look at how were they building 100 years ago. Nice. Because, you know, a lot of us and humans are, you know, I consider that we're so full of ourselves. We believe that technology is going to save us. Mm -hmm. But in, in architecture, when technology came in and with the whole modernism movement, you know, uh, suddenly performance wasn't part of the equation because you could implement machines to, you know, give you the climate call for it. And no one was thinking of how much electricity was using and how were you producing that electricity? And, you know, everybody was more thinking of the modernity. Oh, we can use steel structure. Oh, we're going to separate the structure from the curtain wall. Oh, we're going to use glazed buildings. And actually my thesis in my master's was about that, you know, like we have all of these skyscrapers worldwide that look exactly the same. And they are, you know, from Dubai to San Francisco to New York to Shanghai, places with, I mean, radically opposite climates. And yet everybody's using the same curtain wall design. Um, 
and ignoring the impacts that that has in the environment, you know, in the form of right. yeah. energy use, you know, to climatize. So um, for me, I said that, you know, the, you know, the modern world made architecture worse, less resilient, more energy dependent, and um, globalization, it's not possible in architecture. So to go back to your question, the first thing you need to do is look locally. You know, what, you know, how were you doing things back in the days? No. So for example, right now I'm in the process of designing my own home, another home in Spain. And it's the best exercise for an architect because you're your own client and you can do exactly how you feel you want to do it. So right. this is going to be in Spain. The exercise to work in Spain compared to Lombok is completely different. This is a place with winter. Uh, in Spain and the seasons and in Indonesia, you don't have that. You have a tropical climate with monsoon uh, uh, six months and then the dry season another six months. But temperatures are always like from 28 to 30 degrees, you know, very constant. Yeah. So I'm really excited to do it. And I want to go for, uh, you know, I always think that bioconstruction is the best uh, material source because, you know, anything that is bioconstruction means that you didn't really need to manufacture heavily to produce those materials. Oh, no, that's what so it my means, bioconstruction. Yeah, I mean, it means that you're using natural materials. So if my house in Lombok is bioconstruction, it's made out of bamboo. Bamboo. Bamboo okay. from Lombok, right? So it's locally sourced. Bamboo is really sustainable. Uh, then I'm using wood and uh, my walls are done with uh, sun-dried clay bricks also from Lombok, right? Of course, I use a little bit of cement in the foundations and things like that. But when you use these local materials, you know that the manufacturing process of those materials is minimum. So mm -hmm. before you build, you already know that your impact has been really low. And then another thing was that I built the house with a screwdriver. So, you know, the process of building. What does that mean? You, you built it yeah, with a screwdriver. That was the only machine that we used to build in my house. Oh, my gosh. Just your, yes, so, just your forearm and a screwdriver. Yes, because, you know, everything is like designed kind of for this assembly. And then, um, honestly, I'm so remote. I didn't have the electricity source to do it the other way, you know? So... Uh, so I'm thinking on where the materials are coming from. I'm thinking, how am I going to put them together? What's going to be the energy uh, usage and water usage during the process of construction? And then after, when I'm living in the house, I'm obviously, you know, the house was designed, studying solar movements and airflows and, you know, all of the passive techniques. We've been building a lot of tree canopy to shade, strategically shade. And when you use the house, you know, you have to open louvers in the morning, close them, you know, like it's interactive. Um, but then, you know, because I don't need a lot of energy and I don't need air conditioning in the night because I have, uh, you know, everything is open, cross-ventilated with mosquito nets. So, you know, I can be very comfortably opening all the windows and let the air flow without thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get all the mosquitoes in and things like that. <laughs> Yeah, that would be a terrible of, thing to wake up to. Yeah. So, and then I have a solar system that is really small, but it's enough to run my whole house. Recently, we built a pool, 
my son is seven. My husband was like, we need a pool. I was, you know, all of these things, it takes me like two years to just get my head around it because for me, it's going to be like, oh my God, more water, more electricity. How am I going to do it? You try to so, be net zero. <laughs> yeah. So I implemented an ionizer in my pool to like reduce the amount of chlorine. So that way when I do my walk backwash, I can put all the backwash water in my wastewater gardens and reuse all that water for irrigation or for my toilets. I run everything solar uh, power because my consumption is so little. I don't need to spend a lot of money on a solar system. And, you know, like all of everything is considered. So when you want to do is. sustainable projects, you consider everything. I have chickens. Uh, so all of my organic waste goes for my chickens. We have a huge flood. I don't want to use a diesel, um, you know, run grass cutter. So I have goats. Yeah, that, that, that's perfect. Yeah, like just buy a few goats for <laughs> for your yard. That's the main. Yeah, so at the end, you every little thing, you think about it. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you can be perfect, but you do as much as you can, you know. And in Spain, now I need to do the same exercise, and I'm considering building with a straw bale, which is also a graph, yeah. it's a natural material. I want to live in a healthy house that it's, uh, you know, breathing walls. Um, and of course I looked at the traditional architecture in that area, how they orientate their homes, where do they open the windows, what materials they used back in the days. I want to do, um, a structure for like wood structure on the roof and the clay tiles on the roof. So at the end, it's really an exercise of looking back, seeing how the vernacular and the old architecture was made because that was really providing good comfort without the need of heavy artificial machinery. Um, you want to go for materials that have a low embodied energy. So if they are not natural materials, I mean, you need to really look for what's available. I think in the U.S. really easy because you have a lot of wood. Where is the wood coming from? And how can you improve, you know, the operations later while you live there? You know, what machines can you implement? Some things might look like they cost a lot, but, you know, when you look back of how much money you're going to save on your bills, this is how you want to present it. Because, you know, yeah. if you have a payback of like five years, six years, it's totally worth it. Because then your building is going to be like, what, 20 years? Like, I'm always thinking, like, I want to create a home where my son in the future doesn't really need a lot of external input to be able to be comfortable and, you know, live, you know, well. Sense. Well, it sounds yeah. like your home is is the project in and there in Indonesia is very important to you, and I'm I'm guessing it's one of your most successful projects when you think about it. But it's it. your guinea pig, you know. When you do yeah. it for yourself, you try, and you're not scared of telling clients do that, you know. So for me, it's great because I try it first on my own risk, and then you are really well informed when you can propose these solutions to other clients. Yeah, and they look at it and they say, oh, do that for us, right? And it extends mm -hmm. the possibility exactly. of doing more net zero architecture. Mm -hmm. Correct. Well, you're also, um, you told me about a, a circular economy and ambassador. And uh, you do this on top of everything else, you know, like you said. And uh, can you talk to us uh, more about... Um, First of all, how you define the circular economy and and how that relates to some of the other work you do um, at your studio. Okay, so yeah, 
In 2007, and like I said, I love learning. It's something that I keep doing on my own time. Um, I participated in a bootcamp that I heard on the radio, and this bootcamp was going to train 300 participants, which were previously selected to learn and become ambassadors of circular economy. I had never in my life heard that term before. Yeah. But, um, you know, the headline of the program was Barack Obama. They were like four four other Nobel Prizes, two of them Nobel Prizes of Economy. Smart people there. Yeah, very smart people. They were representatives of the UN, of the World Bank. Uh, We had a lecture that was wonderful from the Ministry of Happening of Bhutan, you know, explaining about other indicators rather than GDP to measure wealth and well-being. So it was like a a weekend of a lot of learning. But the main message, and this is the secular economy, what they were telling us is that we cannot continue with our current linear economical model. We need to transition to a secular economy. And I think I heard you previously in some of your podcasts how Cradle to Cradle book affected you. Yeah, it did. And to be honest, this is exactly the same. This is a, you? you know, secure economy. No, secure economy means cradle to cradle. Yeah. It means the sign for waste out. So, you know, for me, it was really important to hear these very high profile personalities that are running and that know stuff, you know, especially like two economical uh, Nobel Prizes who are telling you that the linear economy that we have now that is based on this idea of constant growth that, you know, where we take from resources, we make, we manufacture, and then we throw away uh, that this model, uh, this model, uh, you know, that gave us so much wealth for like 50 years, right now brought us to the big environmental trouble and it's, um, you know, the cause of a lot of the problems that we have now because of, you know, it's a consequence of this linear growth idea, um, you know, and it is a problem because in a linear economy where we throw everything as waste and, you know, we're the only species that has garbage. That's true. You know, and we've created a lot of garbage. I mean, it's not Too minor, um, you know, and we are still believing that in this planet, which is finite, that we can have a, a model of a production model of, you know, um, where endless resources come to us and we can throw them away as if, you know, we keep having more and more. And, yeah. you know, One right now, exactly. And these high personalities, you know, they can see it. They see that the economy model is based on a, an illusion that cannot be uh, you know, uh, sustainable in the long run and that we are running literally right now out of those resources. So yeah. the secure economy, what it's saying is that we need to look beyond the take waste model and that we need to look at nature because in nature, and this we've learned at school, you know, like everything in nature is circular. Like we have the water mm-hmm. cycle, the nitrogen cycle, like I mean, we all watched, uh, I explained this in schools, you know, like in in middle schools. And I asked them first if they saw the Lion King because Mufasa explains to Simba exactly that. That we all belong to that cycle, natural cycle. And yet humans, we've based all of our, like our human enterprises based on a complete opposite paradigm. And that's really, like that idea is really what is, 
you know, bringing us to collapse, you know, because we can't continue with that same model, but we could thrive. I mean, we could thrive in a secure economy model. You know, like, yeah. it's not like we need to go back to like prehistoric times, you know, like not at all. We could, nature and the world is so rich and can provide so much. It's just that we need to base our whole design and our whole economical model on the three major principles of secular economy, which is the first one is we need to protect and care for the earth resources, okay. which it makes sense, right? We take everything yeah. from nature. So, you know, how can we protect care? How can we improve? How can we regenerate those earth resources that we keep taking? The second is that all of the things that we manufacture, all the products, all the components, the materials, anything that we use for our enterprise and that we consume, it must be either in the biodegradable cycle or the reusable cycle. And this is exactly the message of cradle to cradle as it well. It is, right. Yeah. The, the bionutrients and the technical nutrients, I think, is what Exactly. Yeah. And we need to design with this idea. We need to design with no waste. We need to consider the life cycle of a product or what's going to happen after. We need to design for this assembly. And we need to take out, and that's the third principle, the negatives out of the system. We cannot ignore the pollution. That's a way of garbage, you know, contamination, the depletion of the resources, the social impact of all of our actions. It's really important that when we design, we consider for those externalities that we've been ignoring for decades, you know, like for example, Coca-Cola is selling all of their Coca-Cola worldwide in their plastic bottles. They are creating a huge problem of plastic pollution. Yep. They need to be responsible to consider that. You know, and I think this is something that it's major and that is huge and that it's the only way we can make it happen. Um, I don't know if you heard of Jared Diamond. He wrote a book. Uh, it's called Collapse. Yes, Jared. Yes, I, that is. I have cited that book in, in many things that I've written because um, it, I mean, it kind of frightens me to. <laughs> for, mm, to be yes. Honest. Yeah. Yes, um, it's frightening, but what he really explains, uh, you know, it's what circumstances brought different societies to collapse. Mm -hmm. And People. then if you combine that, you know, with this other guy, Jeremy Riskin, who was part of the uh, CK Economy Bootcamp, I participated um, in his book, The Third Industrial Revolution. I mean, you know, in general, what they're really saying is that Humans or societies go to collapse if they are holding on to an idea that brings them to collapse. In our case, it's this idea of infinite growth and linear, yeah. you know? Um, and it's funny because they explain it with a similar sense, you know, like imagine you are in a boat and there is a huge uh, rock of gold, like pure gold, and the rock falls, you know, out of the, the boat and you jump with it and you grab it because you're thinking of, oh my God, this rock is so much wealth. Imagine the amount of things I can do with the money that this rock, you know, it's going to provide to me. So you're grabbing this rock, but you're sinking with it to the yeah, bottom yeah. of the ocean. And oh, yeah. what they're saying is that you're not tied up to the rock. You could let it go and come up. Yeah, you're giving away and giving up the wealth that that growth could provide to you, but you will survive. 
only if you let go of it. Yeah, that reminds me of the book Ishmael, where there was a similar analogy to b- between flying and free falling. And, and the, what's the difference between flying and free falling? Well, when you hit the ground, right? And we may think <laughs> flying high and, and you know, we're, we're doing really well, but, you know, we're actually free falling off this cliff. And exactly. It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And mm-hmm. that's why that book scared me because it was showing history of where humanity has failed numerous times and how, and I, and it, mm-hmm. we're on the same path. And it is funny because when you hear about other societies collapsing, you, you think to yourself like, oh, I mean, how could they not see it? I mean, why didn't they do anything about it? And, you know, we're literally in the same scenario. It, yeah, we are. And climate change is, and has been, I should say, slow and all these slow moving things we tend to ignore right and and now it's moving much faster and it's harder for us to ignore because we're we're experiencing it some of us are experiencing it every day and it is really here i mean i remember talking to uh, my cousin he was telling me he has a huge company of, of renewables and uh, he was telling me like four or five years ago in Five years, we're not going to be talking about anything else than climate change. And yesterday I sent them a screenshot of this big Spanish newspaper because everything there is all about the drought now and how we're having fires in April already and how uh, we are on a heat wave in April. They're reaching 40 degrees Celsius in April. And, you know, right now it's like a country that lives heat waves of six months long with no water, you know? Yeah. Um, and people are like, oh, it's the drought. But, you know, it's really not the drought. We've been saying that this is going to come for a long time. And the yep. actions is what they're lacking. Decades, decades. We've, they've been scientists. Have been yeah. Trying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, this show is, is one of the mission, uh, part of the mission of this show is to share with our audience that, Despite all of these negative things that are going on around climate, we have the solutions in front of us to um, combat a lot of these problems. And it's just a matter of willpower to do it. And that's what you're doing at at Bambooks Studios. And I'm very uh, impressed by it. And so I'm wondering uh, what's next for your studio? And, And at what point will you say, hey, I've been successful at this? That's never going to happen. <laughs> they, they complete like, oh, I've done enough. You know, yeah, I don't you think have, that You have ever... to do everything apparently. So yeah, I could see why you'd answer it that way. But also I think like it's great, you know, it's like there's always things you can do better or improve. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about all of these world problems. There's a lot to do. So, you know, I'm a little bit restless. My personality is like that. Um, okay. And it's so enriching, you know, when you do good work and, you know, this is like in any sense, whether it's, uh, uh, you, you know, when you go into charity or you do anything pro bono or you're helping uh, in general, I think that's really enriching and it makes you enjoy your job a lot more. Right now uh, in Bambuka Studio, we've been working for six months. I honestly don't want to design anymore and build uh, buildings that are not designed for the secure economy for this assembly. So yeah. I am transitioning to a circular architecture only. 
Um, we are focusing in Indonesia, no, where I have my resources here. I'm focusing on sustainable source wood, uh, and we're working on a range of prefab modular wood houses designed to the best standards for providing, you know, all of the thermal comfort that I need and very well designed for this tropical um, context. Um, but again, I want them to be built with a screwdriver because I want to minimize yeah, the impact I like of construction. That. It's great. I think that's uh, really good um, when you consider the impact of the machines you're using at construction. And I obviously want to do net zero and uh, I want to minimize the amount of cement and steel using the project. Um, so I'm launching this, you know, soon. I've, I'm already building three of them. And I would like to move oh. my company just to do this kind of architecture and then obviously sustainability consulting for other projects. I think I've been doing 10 years more traditional design and builds. Yeah, it was sustainable, but I was still using concrete and steel architecture. And I think I'm ready to move to the Come next on. step. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope this happens for you because I think it's going to be inspiring for a lot of other people to follow this path and then we're headed in the right direction for sure if that happens yes and i always tell my team like we do this and in five years everybody's gonna be copying us but in sustainability right. in sustainability there can't be competition because the goal the ultimate goal is that everyone does it like that yeah right yeah i was so always you're setting the bus you know yeah i was always confused about people who got really competitive in the field of sustainability um, I don't know why, maybe it's just part of being part of the capitalist system or something, but or I'm humans, like, hey. no, I mean, I think it's part yeah. of our nature, but I that's so. why I, a lot of women are really powerful on this movement because I think move, women for, you know, millennia, we've been a bit more like put aside on the, you know, the job of nurturing and, you know, there wasn't that much competition in our nature because of that. And uh, this is a really important message because we need to do this collaborative exercise yeah, together and we all need to learn from each other. I was li listening to your podcast with Jamie Alexander and how they do open source. And I think this is yeah, really important if we really want to accelerate the action and the transition. Yeah, open source. I mean, I, I believed in that since I was in grad school. And um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that's another reason, too, you pointed out, like, why we have this season dedicated to women at the forefront of climate action, because there's so many of them, and they're they're really mm -hmm. leading the way. I think, you know, besides the fact that, you know, by nature, we're a bit more nurturing, also it's because there's not all dogs sitting on high chairs on the sustainable path, because it's such a new thing. So it's helping you know, like I was 30 working in CH2M Hill as the lead of sustainability in their office, you know. So it was giving me an opportunity to climb up the ladder, like the professional ladder, a lot faster because they weren't like a specialist older than me sitting there. So that's sure. why it's really also rewarding for students because you're entering into literally like an unknown territory for the older generations. So you yeah. have this enormous opportunity ahead of you to lead and, you know, like do things differently, um, you know, not only considering sustainable and low impact on all of that, but also differently in the way of how we collaborate with ourselves and we organize ourselves in a much more 
you know, less competition, much more collaborative, much more result-based than, you know, like general impact-based. Um, so oh, I yeah. think it's like a huge change on paradigm. I don't know how you pronounce that word um, in English, but yeah, like changing the paradigm, you know, like the capitalist world, as you said, you know, it was all about like being super successful. And I think here the success is to be like community success more than personal success. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm on the end of the page with you on that. That's... Yeah. And I think that's another thing that we need to also change in our mindset. You know, like we have a huge thing. Maybe during World War II, like everybody was a lot more, you know, like focused on that, more like community and achieving things mm -hmm. together. But the, the aftermath of that was really an individualist world, very totally profit -based. Was like an explosion yeah. of and as much money as we can. <laughs> and considering zero externalities, just money. Yeah. And the only one indicator, you know, which is a little bit like funny because we all know that money can't buy happiness. You know, that's like the typical sentence we've heard forever. Yeah. So why not. would we focus only on money? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For sure. Well, I'm keeping track of time here and we're, we're coming to the end to uh, my favorite, one of my favorite questions, but definitely one that I ask everyone. And I'm excited based on your experience and how you're an action-based person on how you're going to answer this. But uh, you've been in design school and so you know what it's like. And, and as an educator, uh, teaching classes, it can, it can be ups and downs, right? So I'm, I'm wondering if you were asked to step into my shoes and be a design educator, um, what would you, what would you assign the students? What would you have them do? Well, I mean, as an assignment, I don't know, but look, you know what I said before, we are uh, working with the University of uh, Mataram here in Lombok to do plastic neutral locations. I mean, at the end, you can teach anything or assign them anything. But I think as a, a as a base, what we were talking before, they cannot design without the secure economy principles behind. Right. So everything needs to be designed following that because that's the future. The second thing would be to consider every single externality and, you know, the life cycle of the, of whatever project they're doing. But again, you don't need to only work on architecture. It could be anything. We're talking that we need to transition from a linear economy to a secure economy. Someone needs to design how is Coca-Cola going to take back all of those uh, uh, containers and shampoo, I mean, uh, um, bottles, you know, and reuse them or how are they going to transition into a zero waste, you know? So there's endless, the whole system needs to be redesigned. The whole product, uh, you know, yeah. every single thing needs to be redesigned to be designed for this assembly. Every single thing needs to be redesigned to be able to reuse all of the materials. And on top of that, we need to decide how are we going to mine the landfills and recover all of those thrown away, you know. That's a great um, question. Yes. And it's so much design work. I mean, everything is design work, but the main thing would be to consider circular economy and nature. Mm -hmm. We need to work aligned with nature because nature is, you know, it's like the base. It's, the, it's literally the chessboard. 
it's how the nature, how the earth system works. Um, and we need to be aligned with it because if not, we're literally killing our host. But in general, another thing that I think it's really important to tell design students is that your path is not just like one path. Like, look at your career, Eric, or mine, you know? You keep learning as you go and you keep finding your passion. And as long as your principle and your base is the good base, is the one that you know it's the way to move forward in the future, you know, with what we're talking about sustainability and low impact and uh, secure right. economy. And as long as that's really imprinted on your principles, you know, like your ethical code is there, you could do anything. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be like, I'm an architect and I'm, you know, uh, designing plastic neutral locations, you know, sometimes. And I'm creating uh, eco-free markets. Like, just do, you can do anything. And there's so much to do. So I feel like, you know, my trajectory started with corporate, then on my own. Now, you know, I'm trying to do better it's, you know, like, don't be scared of saying, oh, I did study this thing and actually I don't like it. You can keep learning on your own. And as long as your core values are there, like your, regu your sustainability regulation is really imprinted on you, then you could do anything. That's true. You, you, that's great advice. And uh, coming from you, who's, who's proving it, right, in, in the world. And, and uh, I really appreciate you being on Climify today, um, we're both action-oriented people. We've I've learned, yes. and um, that's that's my advice to you out there listening: is get moving. You know, there's a lot of work to do, and it's exciting. Long. Yeah, your your ideas for the class project. There's like, like you said, thousands of ideas there, and just that one paragraph, and that's exciting, right? And if you think about money, there's a lot of money still to be made redesigning everything and you know like based everything on gdp and money doesn't really give a true picture of <laughs> that the well-being yeah. of the societies you know of course not and i guess if you want to convince some business people then you use the money equation right yeah we use the money equation on the life cycle on the payback you know for the investments but you know like how can you monetize a healthy building it's really yeah. hard yeah. to prove it yeah and yet we have a pandemic and then everybody's like, oh my God, you know, our buildings are very healthy. And, you know, it's things that are important. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paula. It's been wonderful talking with you. Um, before we go, where can we find you again online? Yeah, so I'm in bambookstudio.com and I'm also on LinkedIn as Paula Huerta. And hopefully soon they'll be able to listen to this podcast and you know, um, get inspired because honestly, I need, you know, we need an army here. You know, there is so much to do. So, you know, don't despair. Keep going. And, you know, the, the only way forward is where all of the young people and the new generations really start small movements, community-based and want to do more and learn more and just keep going and keep going and keep going until we achieve it. I agree. Thank you, Paula, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Eric, for inviting me. It was a pleasure. This podcast is co-produced by Bianca Sandico and me. A big special thanks 
to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding, Atul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help, Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers.